0: Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Jaw and Adam Brewer.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. This week, I wanna talk about conditional access. And a lot of this information I found on an MVP blog site, name of Daniel Cronland, who is a Microsoft security MVP. He has a blog on the attacker's guide to Azure AD conditional access, which is now intra ID. This is a little bit old, from last year but a lot of this information is still good so we'll have a link to the blog in our show notes and we'll talk through some of the things that he talked about within the blog so the first thing is what is conditional access if you're new to the show or you're new to microsoft security it is a feature that is part of enter id p1 which is also included in the ems SKU, which is the enterprise mobility and security it's also part of e3 and e5 and what it does is allow Allows you to block access to a certain app most people start with m365 or azure but it can be any application that's federated with enter id unless a specific condition is met and so those conditions can range from must be on a specific operating system or must mfa or must be a compliant device or must come from a specific ip address there are many many conditions you can get very granular and your policy will basically state unless this condition is met you can't have access you can have block policies you can have allow policies again very flexible There is a feature called security defaults, which is in place if you have no conditional access policies configured. However, as soon as you configure a conditional access policy, the security defaults turn off. One of the most important things to remember about conditional access is that everything is allowed by default. So anything that you aren't explicitly blocking is allowed. And pretty much as a general rule, I think out of all the orgs that I've been in, out of all the customers that I've talked to, there are always going to be some sort of holes within your conditional access design, because most administrators look at what they want to allow and not necessarily what they want to block and or vice versa. Maybe you're just focused on what you're blocking, but you can't just block everything. There's always going to be be something. And so this show is really focused around what can you do to look at that gap analysis to make your conditional access design more secure to be more inclusive so that you aren't having these types of holes within your conditional access policies. One thing to remember is when it comes to passwords and conditional access, the policies are evaluated after that first factor is put in, which generally is the password. And so anything that we're talking about here is always after the password has been inputted. So if your password is compromised, the conditional access policies will kick in after that. And if you have multiple conditional access policies, a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around how that works because they think in more traditional security senses like a firewall. If you have firewall rules, they're evaluated in sequence one by one. And once it hits a rule that applies, it tells you what to do with that traffic. With conditional access policies, they're all evaluated at the same time at every single sign-in. And any conditions that are met, they get applied. So, for example, let's say I have a policy that needs to access Exchange Online. And I have one policy that says it requires MFA. And I have another policy that says it requires a compliant device. Both have to be met in order for me to get access to exchange online. Even though they're two separate policies, it doesn't say that the first one that hits is MFA and if I MFA, I'm in. No, all of them have to be met. I have to be on a compliant device, even though it's a separate policy and I've met the other ones. So that is something that you need to understand is that they're always evaluated all at the same time. The only priority among policies is blocks. So if you have a block policy, even though let's say you have one that is met that allows you to have access, the block policy will take precedent and you will get blocked from that
0: sign-in. Good explainer so far. It is a little different and, and especially because a lot of folks in security background or infrastructure, they come with a networking background. They expect it to work the same way and it doesn't. So Andy, you explained it well, but just to say it a different way, the policies are additive. And so like Andy said, they're all evaluated and all of the requirements from all of the policies that apply that sign-in are applied together. So that's where you get the example Andy talked about where one policy had one requirement, one policy had another. If I match both of those, then I have to satisfy both requirements. So to use a mathematical term, it's the union of all the policies together. And essentially it becomes more restrictive. The more policies you've created that can potentially hit, the more restrictions you create. And then if you think of it this way, most restrictive wins in the sense that, you know, block is even more restrictive than allow with these requirements. And so that's why it takes precedence. Essentially, you just keep layering more restrictions on until you get the most restrictive state because you're just applying all of the policies all of the time. So one way to think about this, and we'll unpack this more as we go along, but what I often did was you would create almost inverse policies. So you'd create the one policy and then you'd create its exact opposite to cover the opposite use case. So I want to allow this scenario, but that's what a lot of what you do. And and Andy touched on that is why folks get tripped up is they get focused on the allow but scenarios. So I want to allow access but you have to do MFA. I want to allow access but you must use a compliant device. Those are still allows but they just have requirements to go with them. But what you haven't created is the block for the inverse scenario. If you're not doing that well then the opposite probably is they don't want you in at all. So a lot of times good practice with conditional access policies is thinking in terms of what's the allow but I want to create and then what's the inverse that I want to not allow at all. And I create two policies that are almost you know that mirror image where they're opposite each other
1: great advice there i often will create one policy with maybe an exception for a security group or let's say i have one policy for the masses and then another more restrictive policy for my admins and so i may exempt them from the masses policy but then create a separate policy specifically for them so same thing like you're saying just a little bit different Mm -hmm. from more of the exclusion part where I'm excluding people from a specific policy, but then I create another policy that includes them and excludes the one from the previous one. So an inverse in that sense too. So two really good pieces of advice for those who are admins in your practice for creating conditional access policies.
0: Yeah. Just look at every policy. And then as you read through it, think about what is not going to trigger this policy and then make sure you have an answer for another policy that's going to be triggered by that inverse or that exclusion or whatever. So if I create a policy that I want to apply to mobile devices, so iOS and Android devices, okay, do I have a policy for desktop class devices like macOS and Windows? And do I have a policy if I can't detect the platform at all? Because those would kind of be all the different scenarios. Now I've touched on all of them and I have a policy in place for each platform as an example. So let's talk about some common weak spots.
1: And as you just stated, Adam, one of the best ways of attacking conditional access is to never trigger it at all. And so if you have a policy, policy that has certain conditions, but you haven't thought about the inverse, well, then that inverse wouldn't ever trigger the conditional access policy. And so one of the first ways that a lot of orgs get tripped up is the exclusion group abuse. And I just talked about this where we're excluding groups. And one of the best practices is to have a security group or an account, at least, to be excluded from all of your CA policies. This is usually your break glass account or accounts if you have multiple ones. There's a blog on Microsoft's site on the best practices for break glass accounts. Some orgs have one, some orgs have two. It's up to you what you want to do with yours, but usually you exclude those from all CA policies. However, sometimes admins will find themselves adding themselves to these exclusion groups. They might add some service accounts to these exclusion groups, or worse, they add like users who are complaining about some sort of policy, and they exclude them from that. You know, could be... Some some IT folks some people just believe that they need to be more administrative have more rights have more leeway it could be some executives like we talked about where sometimes the executives will complain and they feel like they need less security hopefully that's changing these days but I'm hoping that most people don't do this but it can happen and I think it does happen at orgs where you have this group where you just add exclusions to the conditional access policy so if that happens and they're excluded from the conditional access policy you just have that single factor then, right? You're only using the password and that auth to get in and then it doesn't hit any conditional access policies, including say MFA. And if that password gets compromised, which we know happens quite a bit, then they're just gonna walk right in without having to hit a conditional access policy. The other one that's a usually a weak spot, and you know we touched on this already, is you're missing a block policy. So if you're enforcing something, take a look at the other condition, the opposite that could happen, and it's usually good to have that second policy to block it as well as your original one to allow it. So take a look and have that vice versa, the opposite effect, and make that block policy, Because you want to take a look at what happens when it doesn't match this condition when it comes to condition abuse user risk and sign-in risk are a big part of it and user risk and sign-in risk are part of entra id protection in entra id p2 so there may not be i don't know what the percentage is and maybe adam you might have some insight more than me what percentage of customers might be more on p2 and e5 versus me3 and p1 i think the majority of customers are mostly on p1 maybe i'm incorrect in saying that or assuming but you know i think most people aren't using the enter id protection in the p2 if you are a p2 customer and you have this enabled it's highly raises the security of your sign-ins and so the attacker must try to behave like the user in the stolen account enter id protection will detect sign-ins from new countries, anonymous IPs from like Tor addresses, black market leak credentials. And when that happens, an attacker would have to research that user and then use like a VPN or other techniques to make that sign-in look as legitimate as possible. So having a risk-based conditional access policy is going to be very important. So your sign-in risk or your user risk, if you have P2, you should scope a conditional access policy to detect high-risk sign-ins and then hopefully block them or or make them change their password or do something, or MFA. Whatever it is, there should be an elevated condition to allow access or block access.
0: I'd say E5 or p 2 user base is probably at least 50% of the enterprise at this point. I mean, just as two random data points, the set of customers I had last year was about one-third E5. The set of customers I have this year is about two-thirds E5. So let's round that out and say it's about 50%, give or take. So love the user risk sign-in risk policies. I remember when I first used to demo that back in like the 2017 timeframe, I would say, oh, look at this. You can use this to trigger MFA only when... things are suspicious. I would never articulate that as a good practice today. I would say you require MFA all of the time. You would use additional risk as maybe just block if sign-in risk is medium or higher, or at least start doing things like require managed device when we see the sign-in risk be elevated. Maybe, you know, for scenarios in which we're really trusted. I love the device compliance requirement all of the time. But again, if you're going to layer on additional controls based on risk, you know, that's still a good thing. I just like going to block at this point. Like if sign and risk is suspicious, just don't let them in. That's really the most powerful thing you can do here, but at least layer on additional controls. So yeah, this is probably hard for attackers to break through because it's pretty robust. It looks at a lot of factors in terms of time of day, operating system type, public IP address, all those sorts of things. An attacker would have to do an enormous amount of research and then a fair amount of work in all honesty to behave just like you to the point where they wouldn't trigger this. So, this is a really strong control you can use.
1: Device platform is another condition that could be abused from an attacker standpoint. Device platform can be easy to spoof. According to Daniel here, it's a client application user agent string. And so, if the policy includes platform conditions which require say like windows ios android mac whatever platform it is you can change your user agent string to anything else so it's just a text string and conditional access interprets it to look for the operating system like adam said in the beginning it's a really good idea that if you say have a mobile device policy and you're allowing something for ios and android the inverse should be that you have another policy for windows for mac for linux and then if it doesn't detect anything at all have a block policy or whatever policy that you need to. So even though I think in the wild, spoofing device platform is probably pretty rare, it's not hard to do. And it's just better that you have conditional access policies that just cover your bases.
0: It's so easy and consumes such little time. You'd be a fool not to at least try this if you're an attacker to break in. And combined with how people often think about creating policies where they get hung up on the allow but scenarios I've talked about before, like, well, if you're on, you know, when I, phone, I want to allow you as long as you're on a managed device. Okay. And if that's your only policy, then if I say, again, uh, you know, I'm signing in from a Linux machine, we say, well, I don't have a policy for you. So come on in. Single factor auth is all you need. I mean, that's pretty easy to bypass. So you got to make sure you're really buttoned up on this. If you are looking for the device platform at all, it might be best practice today not to do this. And then you just cover all your bases automatically. But when you start creating conditions that differentiate based on platform, now you have more work to do because you have to cover all of the scenarios in play. Now, what's interesting about this, and this bubbled up years ago, is Apple had an issue with iPads to where they would get served like the mobile version of a website because they say, hey, I'm mobile Safari. And a website would say, oh, okay, you want this dumbed down version for smartphones that is very limited functionality. I'd be like, I'm on a 13-inch iPad Pro. I can handle the full website. But they would serve them like the baby one and make it hard to get the full thing. So, So years ago now, I mean, this probably was six, seven years ago, iPads report the exact same user agent as does a macOS device. For Safari by design. And that was to ensure they were getting desktop class web pages fed to them. Well, guess what? This broke conditional access policies for people because it looks at the same thing. It looks at the user agent string. And so these iPads would show up and say, hey, I'm a Mac, let me in. And a lot of cases, you know, people didn't have a conditional access policy for the Mac set up, or they had one that maybe blocked because they didn't have Macs in their environment, but they had iPads and there were unintended consequences of this change by Apple. Now, I think it was a smart change by Apple, but it proves the point here really well, that even to this day. If you have iPads you want to allow, when somebody's using Safari, they will trigger a Mac OS policy and not actually an iPad OS policy because of how the Safari user agent is reported on iPad. So that's why this is a very simple control to bypass. I mean, Apple did it, and anyone can change the user agent to anything they want to be. So just keep this in mind here. This is um not a strong control, but it's you know, for your users who are not trying to be malicious, if you want to steer them to the right experience, it's fine. just don't rely on this for security in and of itself.
1: I didn't know that about the Safari. That's really good insight for anyone who's in device management and conditional access policies.
0: Yep, that's all documented, but it's just, it proves the point, right? It's a really good example of it in the real world where nobody was acting maliciously. And you understand why Apple did it because it it got really frustrating on iPads. It's like, I've got, again, like a 13-inch screen on my iPad Pro, and you're serving me this site for smartphones. And in general, I think we've kind of walked away from that. Now we have like... sites that just reflow the layout. But if you remember back in, you know, the mid 2010s, you used to get served like an entirely different web page and it didn't have all the functionality of the full featured one. And it was frustrating.
1: Locations is another condition abuse. Really easy to bypass. Location conditions are based on IP addresses. These are the named locations that you have in Entra ID and they can be set to certain IP ranges or certain countries. I think our very first show, we talked about geo fencing and ip Mm -hmm. addresses and why that's a bad idea because you can easily bypass these using a vpn today so there's really no use in adding any type of location condition blocking certain countries in my opinion and also allowing certain ip addresses or blocking certain ip addresses i mean it's really not going to do a whole lot because you can just spoof all those policies that allow corp public IP or named locations. I think that gets a little bit tricky because if an attacker has a foothold in your internal network, then they will be able to bypass that conditional access policy. And since most attacks these days originate from on-prem, it's fairly likely that they will do this. I really, really dislike when orgs use an exception or some sort of bypass and just allow things to happen on corp IP versus more zero trust. And now I mentioned this to a customer who, like I said in our last show, where they fully admitted that they had understand. Understood that this wasn't zero trust I'm like you are allowing your corp IP to just be bypassed with all your security policies what happens when your network gets compromised which is very likely that it will happen then the attackers have full reign they have zero security policies to get through even if it's MFA like you should not bypass MFA on your corporate network there are better ways to implement it we've talked about it many times on this show like Microsoft has ways to implement better MFA policies where MFA tokens are sent because of say windows hello for business or something else where it's not a burden on the user and you're still getting the signal and using the conditional access policy so i would highly recommend not using location i get why some people do it on network-based security but this is really easy to bypass and abuse It was our very first
0: show. I remember that 160 episodes ago now. But just like with the device platform thing, you should not be making any security-based decisions based on this. Just like based on your platform, I shouldn't give you a more relaxed security policy because you're coming from a Mac or what you told me is a Mac versus, or compared to I shouldn't give you less security or more security because you're coming from a different country. Because again, that's easy to bypass as well. And I'm with you, Andy. Nothing makes me crazy crazier than relaxing security based on egressing from a corporate IP. Number one, for the user experience alone, I don't want you hairpinning all your traffic back to your on-premises network. I don't want you doing that. That is a terrible experience for everything Microsoft 365 related. It goes directly against our guidance for how to create your security posture. And if your argument is we want to do SSL inspection, well, I don't like doing that either because I think that is a high value target and has a ton of attack surface. So I don't like that either. And then, yeah, you get to the whole security concept of most attacks originate on premises. And now you're allowing even more attack surface to be readily accessed by that attacker with single factor authentication. So now I can I mean, well, heck, I've got run of the network here. Why don't I go ahead and pull all your NTLM hashes and uh, start trying to brute force them. And then once I've got a couple more passwords, I can start really having fun in the cloud because they only need single factor authentication. And it's just no. <laughs> Don't do this. Please, 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 please don't do this. And in general, look, I've seen people do it like exclude like MFA requirements. Here's the bottom line with MFA. And I don't want to get way off topic here because we're talking about conditional access policies, but I see it as at least adjacent. With default MFA, if you have a conditional access policy that just says for every user, every sign on every application, you will always do MFA, which by the way, is how Microsoft's tenant is configured. You should not be prompted for MFA all the time. If a user's getting like prompts all the time to pick up their phone and their authentic And do number matching, you're doing it wrong. It shouldn't do that. A modern MFA experience should only prompt when something that's tangible has changed. So, as long as the user's password hasn't expired, as long as the user's on the same device, as long as the user's security posture or risk posture hasn't changed, then we should not continually require them to re perform multi factor authentication. So, there's no need to create exceptions to it because the default behavior is not going to give users MFA fatigue. So creating exceptions to a problem that doesn't exist just introduces more risk for no benefit. That's ultimately where we're at today. Yes, I understood once upon a time in a different world we had MFA where, yes, users got prompted all the time, and we're trying to limit the number of prompts they get. But in the current default behavior of Entra ID, users should only basically get prompted when their password expires. And by the way, your user's password shouldn't expire anymore either. So ultimately, you shouldn't be getting MFA prompts a whole lot other than for things that are highly sensitive. Like Andy and I always talk about, uh, we both work for Microsoft. We get prompted every time to access like our benefits site, which makes a lot of sense, or our HR information system. We use SAP success factors. Yeah, I get prompted every time for that. Otherwise, I never get prompted. And it's not just because I'm doing that multi-factor authentication sign-in with like Windows Hello for business. The same is true on my iPhone. The same is true on my Mac that are also enrolled with Microsoft. It's just, I don't get prompted. So yeah, this makes me crazy and is just not recommended at all. I mean, for some of these other things, I mean, you can kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, if you want, but this one just really, really, really strongly recommend if you're doing this, you find a way to walk away from it sooner than later.
1: So just a few takeaways here. Regularly test your conditional access policies. See what you can get into, see what you can bypass. Basically, pen test them. And, you know, if you're not doing them, ask your pen test vendor or whoever you're going through to do that. There's also an Azure conditional access gap analyzer work workbook. We'll put the link in the show notes. This is super, super great. Like you get number of users signing in with legacy authentication, number of sign-ins by application that aren't impacted by conditional access policies, high risk signing events, bypassing conditional access policies, and the number of sign-ins by location that weren't affected by conditional access policies. So ton of information will help you scope down and close those gaps in your policy design. And also related, like you said, Adam, MFA, while not the total topic of this show it is still a adjacent topic to conditional access there's also a workbook for multi-factor authentication gaps just in case you have any gaps for applications that are signing in that bypass mfa so both workbooks I'll have links within the show notes for you to add them to your Azure and take a look at that. So really good information here, I think. Conditional access is one of the most powerful tools when it comes to identity protection. And oftentimes, it is one of the things that are misconfigured the most. So always kind of do your due diligence and continually improve on that so that you can be more secure.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is a differentiator for Entra ID compared to other cloud identity platforms. The capabilities within conditional access are incredibly powerful and let you create workflows that simply aren't possible in other cloud identity providers. So as an example, a great state you can get to is to where I have to have a device that is managed and is compliant with my company's policy, is enrolled in my enterprise endpoint protection platform, and that the EDR or EPP solution is reporting that my device is not currently under attack its threat level is low or none. If that threat level increases, if the device's compliance posture becomes out of compliance with my policies, my access can be cut off immediately to anything backed by my cloud identity platform. That's really powerful. And that's basically not easily possible with some of the other vendors. So you can do really cool stuff here. It's one of those many examples of where you can pull out the old Spider-Man quote with great power comes great responsibility. And there is great power to conditional access, which means there's great responsibility to ensure that it is properly configured. And if you can do that, you're going to have really great, meaningful, enhanced security through your identity platform, which, you know, a popular phrase a couple of years ago was identity is the new control plane. Identity is the new security perimeter. Well, maybe not the new security perimeter, but perhaps still the most critical security perimeter.
1: Just making sure, Adam, you have seen Spider-Man, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. okay for those of you who might have missed our last show adam often says the phrase hacking the gibson which is from the movie hackers which i love and i discover that adam has not seen that movie and is just Mm -hmm. tossing that phrase around (laughs) so i'm just making sure this other quote here Mm -hmm. you have seen spider-man yes yes peter parker's local drop
0: that line
1: well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening as always. Our contact information will be in the show notes along with the links for the topics that we talked about tonight. If you have any questions or comments, please email us. Thanks, we'll talk to you guys next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJawZero and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.